Tonight, I'd like to continue last week's topic, but really change the topic a little bit. The topic last week was, at least my recollection, was you are not what you think. And when I was trying to remember exactly what I talked about last week, that I remember having given that title to Carrie for the, for the video, uh, You're Not What You Think, isn't that right? And w- once I did that, I, a passage came to my mind from a teacher named Nisargadatta that points to the, uh, the reality that you're not what you're thinking. He said, when your mind is free of thoughts, and its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you will discover that your mind is uh, permeated with a light and a love you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. So once you've been through this experience or tasted this moment free of your preoccupations and thoughts, once you've tasted this, you'll never be the same person again. The unruly mind, the thinking mind, the discursive thoughts will break that peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return. If the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken, all the things that trigger Uh, discursive thinking, grasping and attachment ends, and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. So you can see right now, you don't, even though this is a kind of, it's a very glorious sounding passage, a light and a love you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. This isn't so remote. This is something that we can all taste after our last thought has passed and before the next one arises. We can all touch a reality that we are that you can't quite put into words. You can't quite describe yourself prior to thoughts. Yet you are obviously, the best thing you could, most obvious thing you could say is that I'm, I am, or I'm here. And even that's another thought. That can't even capture the direct experience of, of your mind when it's free of its preoccupations. So this isn't about just having your mind be free of preoccupations. That's a nice thing, but that's not a very reliable thing because our mind is often preoccupied. So last week I talked about transforming our relationship to, the, to our thinking mind. So rather than getting caught up and tormented by, by our thoughts, tormented by trying to get rid of our thoughts. Rather, we make that shift from being just carried along, just absorbed in our thoughts, to um, being aware of them, recognizing and embracing the capacity that we have to be aware, to be aware of anything and not be bound up in it, and to, in fact, enjoy the flow of thinking, to regard our thoughts 
as we would a sound or a smell or a taste or a sensation. The thoughts are to our door of perception called mind as a, as a sound is to our ear. The smell is to our nose. And to, to learn to appreciate the, this particular kind of sense experience. And as with any sense experience, thoughts have uh, feelings that arise with them. Pleasant feelings are associated with some thoughts. Unpleasant feelings with other thoughts. And to be able to see the nature of thoughts, but to see that a thought cannot capture you. And a thought of yourself is not yourself. And that thoughts have a very evanescent, very ephemeral nature. They appear, they disappear. And what I also tried to point out is that they think themselves. That there's no little agent in there, you know, there's no little person in there who's saying, now think this, now think that. The thoughts come uninvited like a waterfall. Thousands every day. Most of them repeats from the day before. So the more we open the doors of perception and really see thoughts for what they are, study them in a way, we see that thoughts are their own thinkers. They're insubstantial. You can't even find them when you look for them. Now where is, where is, your, where is your thought now? Try to find one. And then try to find out what, what it's like when, after that last thought has passed and before the next one. So that was last week. This week, I thought to entitle the, the, the uh, talk, uh, You Are What You Think. And I, <laughs> I brought along a, no less than one of the central teachings from the compilation of teachings called the Dhammapada. And this is from the Buddha. We are what we think. (laughs) Are you confused? (laughs) We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So this is a reminder that our thoughts, even though they, their ultimate nature is empty, impermanent, insubstantial, can't quite capture the deepest essence of your nature, which is indescribable yet ever-present. Nevertheless, they, he's pointing to the fact that our thoughts, especially unrecognized un, to the untrained mind, our thoughts are powerful. Even to the trained mind, our thoughts are quite powerful. With our thoughts, we make the world. So a central part of the teaching is to not just see thoughts, the the common characteristics that we find in thoughts, that we find in moods, that we find in sensations, impermanent, unreliable, empty, selfless, but to... Notice what it is that we're thinking and let ourselves uh, 
let our thoughts spring from, rather from ignorance, confusion, let our thoughts spring from love and wisdom. So this is a talk, at least, I, I had no idea exactly what I would say, but I, I want, my intention was to celebrate this amazing capacity that we have to think, but to watch what it is our mind is doing. Because with our mind, we make the world. And it is a very central part of the teaching. In fact, it is the second limb of the of the what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. What the first w- limb of the Eightfold Path is the is what's called uh, right or wise understanding. And this wise understanding speaks to the realization, and ultimately both thinking about and then realizing with one's own in one's own direct experience the deepest nature of reality the nature of things the way they actually are regardless of of um, how we want them to be things are the way they are and the way things are if we look very carefully we see that the world that we are born into has within it a whole, a lot of stress, a lot of things that are hard to bear, and nobody is immune to that. That's wise understanding. Everybody has, it's so funny, every time I start to say this, the Yiddish word for it comes into my mind, tsuris, troubles. Everybody has stress. Not just you, not just your neighbor, everybody, nobody is immune. Everybody's life is marked to some degree by some measure of dissatisfaction, uh, some experience of not getting what you want, some experience of not wanting what you get. Everybody, and everybody has the experience of having an unreliable mind and an unreliable body, and that life is impermanent. That's hard. And what makes it even harder what turns the essential difficulties into mental uh, suffering is the chronic habit of wanting it to be other than the way it is, fighting with reality, not being in harmony with reality. And that takes the shape of a constant craving for different experiences, craving for, for to get somewhere other than where you are, to be someone other than who you are, are to get rid of whatever it is that um, that you don't like, and what that does is it it hardens into a, a state of perpetual, pretty perpetual craving. And the flip side of craving for pleasure is aversion to to displeasure, and that keeps us in a state of of pain. But the Buddha didn't stop there. He said that there is a. It, it's possible to experience a cessation of that state of, of uh, struggle, that state of fighting with reality. The essential difficulties of life remain for everyone, but the suffering about those is completely optional and depends on the presence or the absence of craving or aversion in our minds. And this is completely workable. This is manageable, craving and aversion, 
and it is it is it is liberated. It is possible to liberate this quality in our mind through love, through through um, through letting go, through acceptance, through attention, because attention uh, cannot coexist. Attention, interest, curiosity, all the things that are a factor of being present in one's life cannot coexist with a state of craving, with a state of resistance. So every moment that we embrace our life, are curious about it, interested. You can't be interested and curious and suffer in the same moment. It's just not possible. So it is possible in this very life to experience a release of this, at least this added suffering that comes on to our, um, to the basic difficulties. And then there is a path to, to do that. Love, compassion, joy, equanimity, training our, our attention, loosening our heart, learning how to let go. There is a path that we can, and the purification of our actions and thoughts and, and our understanding. And this wise view that includes the, the, what are the, called these four noble truths, that there's stress, there's mental suffering is caused by, by resisting that basic understanding, that there is an end to that mental suffering, and there's, uh, we can all create a path out of our own lives that loosens that grip of, of suffering in our lives. This is followed by what's called wise or right intention, which is also called right or wise thought. And this means inclining our thoughts, inclining our attitude, inclining, orienting our life after we have, um, after we've um, seen or at least have some even intellectual understanding of the basic realities of life, if we've really touched it in our hearts, the reality of the basic difficulties difficulties of our life, the only thing that can possibly follow from that is to have our life oriented toward fulfilling that possibility of living freely, of living open-heartedly, living in a way that's not contentious with our life. And so right thought or wise thought includes... Uh, thoughts of renunciation, which means learning to uh, live more simply, to renounce our... I noticed there was a, a sea of... Um, I want to make this a... Um, a uh, what's it called? A, a smartphone-free zone. But I noticed almost immediately after the sitting, many people... And I don't want to... This is not meant to shame anybody because I'm one of these too. I do this often compulsively. But people immediately pick up their, their um, smartphone. And this, this little movement of mine is a kind of, it's a kind of craving. It's a kind of craving for experience, for, to, uh, to deal with some kind of underlying restlessness that gets generated by being in a state of craving all the time. And it's a vicious cycle, and it goes around and around and around, and then we can't sit with ourselves. And then the, more, the less we can sit with ourselves, the more restless we are, the more our life spins, and the more our life spins, the more we're oblivious 
to the fact of, of dukkha, of suffering, of difficulty, and we're oblivious to the cause of it, which is our own mind, to a tremendous degree. So why, so uh, wise thought or wise intention, inclining our thoughts toward renunciation means we we start to um, poke at some of these compulsive habits. We begin to exercise a little restraint, and what helps us do that is to think about that, is to contemplate, contemplate the state of our own mind. Contemplate the state, the, the universal habits of mind, and then let our act, let our thoughts be committed to. Because our actions will follow our thoughts. Let our actions be committed to practicing a little restraint. And then, if you want to get really serious about it, practice some serious renunciation, where you actually give it up, maybe give something up, but not out of some kind of um, grim duty because it's good for you, but, but because you know in your heart, and it's, it springs from love, it springs almost a joyful giving up of the causes of your own suffering. So wise thought is to have thoughts oriented toward uh, renunciation, simplicity, contentment. And while I'm on the subject of using these words, simplicity, notice what happens to your mind when you even hear the word simplicity, something in us resonates with it because it, point, it reminds us of the, the primordial or the essential nature of our mind. It's very simple. Our life is, in fact, not so complicated, but our minds are very complicated. We complicate life. Life is really, ultimately, an unfolding of six experiences. It's seeing it's hearing, it's smelling, it's tasting, sensing, thinking. That's all. Yet our mind tends to elaborate, embellish, proliferate. So renunciation means just um, inclining toward simplicity. And then I said maybe toward contentment. This is also one of the fruits of, of simplicity and renunciation is contentment. Say the word contentment. It resonates because contentment is our natural state. It's not our conditioned state. Does this this ring true to you when you hear the word contentment? How about the word calm? Do you notice that something happens to your nervous system when you hear the word? So this is just because our thoughts are being used wisely to remind us of our unconditional qualities. Now now think the thought, agitation, worry, insufficiency, not good enough. This is often the nature of of our thinking mind. So part of noticing our thoughts, are seeing what are those thoughts that lead, that are onward leading toward a happy life? And what are those thoughts that are onward leading toward more misery? So, um, 
wise thought or right thought is thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of harmlessness, inclining our thoughts toward and our intentionality toward not doing anything or saying anything or even thinking anything, if we can help it, that, uh, that causes ourselves or anybody else harm. Now, when we start practice, we're just, it's just a, that waterfall of thoughts, and we don't even, somebody, you might be able to tell somebody what you're thinking, but we don't even, we're just so caught in a sea of thoughts and so identified in believing our thoughts that we don't even know how to, how to work with them. But if you slow down a little bit, when you can, if you put your mind in the same location as your body, if you develop that habit of being oriented toward reality instead of fantasy, so that just means living in the present moment, your mind will start to settle, your body will settle, and when your mind and body settle, you will start to notice more. You'll notice, of course you'll notice what's going on in your body, but you'll also notice more uh, and discern more the difference between the kinds of thoughts that you have. You'll see, as we often talk about, you'll see what thoughts are your frequent visitors. I probably talked about this last week. What are your top ten tunes? And you'll see that many of the thoughts are about planning. Some of it very necessary. A lot of thoughts about remembering, reminiscing. This is a wonderful wonderful capacity of our mind to be able to plan. No problem with planning. In fact, if we're settled to some degree, if we already are home in reality, then planning becomes is something that is a very skillful use of thought. Strategizing, visioning, structuring, very useful. But, we, but when we're settled we realize that planning is something that is taking place in the present, and whatever I'm planning for hasn't happened yet. And I'm already home, and so whether things work out or not, I'm not sure how they will, but I can, but I, and I know that I, this is where home is, this is where happiness is, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to tether my happiness to how things turn out. If that's the case, then I'm, I'm in a state of worry. Anxiety, but if I'm settled, I'm going to I'm going to plan much more skillfully. And then to be able to be settled, my mind in the same location in my body, and I I'm st- I, I'm reminiscing. I'm thinking about uh, the past. We have in our sangha uh, one year ago yesterday, one of our very dear sangha members, Carlos Ramirez. Uh, who was a, a larger-than-life character who lit up the room and, uh, and so many people's lives. He, he passed away. I feel so blessed to be able to be here, embodied, present, thinking about Carlos right now. Carlos is, in some ways, when I think of Carlos and I think of Carlos in the past, I know that's happening here. So I can, I'm delighted that I can 
think I can have a cascading series of memories about Carlos and about uh, eulogizing him and about and about all the outpouring of love and affection and all of that. That's a beautiful thing to be able to think about the past. But if I am dwelling unconsciously in the past, in in uh, what happened a year ago, disembodied, not settled here, then it's very it's 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 really um, disorienting. It's confusing, and it's and I become I become um, unmoored. I become just un, really uncomfortable, and and I can't even actually feel what it is like to grieve, uh, have an anniversary reaction to Carlos's passing. But if I'm here, and I know I'm here, what a wonderful thing to be able to think about. I don't know how I got off on that one, but but uh, thoughts of harmlessness and then thoughts of goodwill. That's the other part of right thought. Uh, to what a beautiful use of our thoughts. I, one of my teachers said 20 years ago, the best use of, cloth, of, of your thoughts are thoughts of, of and aspirations of being of benefit Thoughts and aspirations of love, of compassion, of, of sympathetic joy and equanimity. And with these thoughts, we literally transform our mind and transform our world. When, you, when, I'm, when I'm thinking, there's a wonderful practice, if those, some of you are new to practice, but there's a, a wonderful practice where there is a, a very strategic, not strategic, but a very... A, conscious use of thought and repetitive thought, uh, developing the quality of, of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. They're called the Brahma Viharas. Now, those thoughts, when I, when I generate a thought of goodwill, it means I'm holding myself or another person in my heart, and I'm saying, may you be happy. I'm creating an image, a thought of them, a felt experience of them, and then I'm radiating a wish that that person be well and happy. Now, when I do that, I connect with, not only am I thinking about that person or thinking about myself, but I'm connecting with an unconditional quality that is, the, that is within the nature of all of our hearts, all of our minds. That's the quality of, of universal loving kindness. This is what expresses itself when our hearts and minds are open. And because our hearts and minds become quite constricted, occluded by so much torment, so much reactivity, we sometimes need to reawaken, reawaken this quality. But it's not something we're adding on. It's something we're, we're just pinging ourselves and reminding ourselves that this is our heart's desire to extend itself in goodwill and to keep expanding that circle of affection till we realize once again that we don't exist apart from each other, that we're not so isolated and separate as our thoughts often tell us. And not only does this repetitive thought, this repetitive reminder of this, um, this quality reawaken this quality, but when, one, when you do this in a concentrated way, the power of that, power of that love 
expands exponentially. So literally, each person who does this with their thoughts becomes a force, literally a field of love that people can feel. People can feel. People catch it from people who have it. We all have it, but we've all become a little bit um, preoccupied with our internal drama and our external drama and, in, and the difficulties of life. But unfortunately, we tend to compound the difficulties with the state of being in a state of fear or in a state of grasping, in a state of contentiousness. So one of the antidotes for that is to incline toward goodwill. The same thing with thoughts of compassion. Rather than hiding away in fear and, um, and contraction in the face of so much pain in this world, Instead, we incline our hearts and minds through thought to join with suffering wherever we see it. So we bring someone into our mind's eye, which is a kind of thought. We create an image of that person or ourselves, if we're doing it. It's a kind of mental gymnastics a little bit. But then what we do is we say, I care about your suffering. And we try to keep them close, keep ourselves close. Now, do it right now for yourself. If you're in a really hard place in your life, just for, one, for a few moments, say, I care about my suffering. I care about my suffering. May I be free of suffering. That goodwill, that well-wishing, and that caring. And then think of somebody you know who's in trouble right now, who's really struggling. And that... And, the condition tendency is to kind of distract ourselves. But instead, turn toward that person in your mind, arouse a thought of that person and then the feeling of that person if you can, and say, I care about your suffering. And this begins a, what can become a potent process of melting away our separateness and melting away that those that, that tendency to um, to isolate that tendency to to cling to um, our own uh, separateness. The same with thinking of somebody using thought to imagine somebody in your life who's happy who's experiencing good fortune at this point, knowing that they'll have other stresses, but that they're in a really good place or experiencing success or abundance. Bring that person to mind. And even if it's you, and join with that, the joy that's arising for that person or for yourself. Say, may your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never wane. May you be happy. I'm happy that you're happy. And notice, that's a little bit, for those who don't know these practices, this one's considered harder than the first two. Because our tendency toward comparing and envy, jealousy. But nevertheless, do it. You may it brings so much joy. It brings joy to the, 
to the giver, gives joy to the receiver of such sympathetic joy. So how did we do that? We did that with the use of thoughts, thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of friendliness, thoughts of connection. And then we often we also have to notice the opposite. Notice our thoughts of ill will. And let turn our own thoughts of ill will and the feelings that go with them, turn those into uh, places of self-compassion. When we see what's frequently arising in our mind, see the inclination of our mind, we see that it's inevitable that that leads to more and more distress. So some, in some way turn toward ourselves and go, ouch, I'm really causing myself harm. And then let the recognition of our, uh, our thoughts that cause suffering be the, the reminder of our, of our commitment and our intention to incline toward thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of harmlessness. With our thoughts, we make the world. I think I'll read it once more. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So since the the heart of what turns our basic stress into, into mental suffering is craving and clinging and attachment, uh, we can also apply thoughts from the morning from the time we wake up in the morning till the time we go to, to sleep, we can apply thoughts that that serve as antidotes to the clinging mind. And this most simple one, the one that, uh, this is a little segue into reading a, one of my favorite passages, but this most simple one is the thought, let go. Try it for a moment. Just drop the words into your heart right now. Let go. Let be. As is. So just to give you a little bit of confidence in this practice of letting go and having thoughts of letting go, I read the words, the frequently repeated words of Ajahn Sumedho, the great uh, monk. He says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your thoughts, and your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that, achieve this and go into that, understand this and read the sutras, that sutras are discourses, study the Abhidharma, that's Buddhist psychology, 
learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Majamaka, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. So this let go is a, a reminder that our mind is often in a state of craving what's next or clinging to what came before. And the letting go helps us to arrive. The whole point of our practice is fulfilled in the present moment. As Alan Watts says, it's learning about digging the present. It's about grooving with the eternal now. He says it's not, he says it's somewhat like dancing or making music. We don't dance in order to reach a certain place on the dance floor. If that were the purpose, then the fastest dancers would be the best. Or to, it's not meant to, Making music is not meant to reach the, the, the end of the composition. If that were the purpose, the fastest music, musicians would be the best. But just like music and dancing, the point of the practice is the playing itself, is the present moment itself. And it's a very central teaching that the most, um, the most healthy attachment if there is one, most fortunate attachment is to be present, to know that everything is fulfilled in the present. As it is spoken by the, by the Buddha in the uh, middle-length sutras or discourses of the Buddha, the Buddha talked about one fortunate attachment. He said, let not a person revive the past or on the future build his or her hopes. For the past has been left behind, the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and to be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? 
No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentless by day, by night, it is he or she, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. So our, our thoughts oriented toward, uh, not toward thoughts as much to the past or the future, even though, as I said before, it's a wonderful thing to be able to think about the past and the future. But to have our thoughts oriented toward whatever and interested in the presently arisen experience. Like what it is you're, ha- what's ex- what you're experiencing right now in this room. Don't look for anything but this. As one Japanese poet, Ryokan, put it, if you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? Buddha being awake is your mind right here, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look beyond that, he says. And once you're here... As I said before, you you start to connect, not just start, you feel yourself as part of the family of of beings. You become more sensitive and and more caring. That's just a natural fruit. That's why all these qualities that we use our thoughts to remind us of, they, they just show up naturally. Love flows from being present. So it's one thing to remind ourselves of of love and compassion and joy and equanimity with our thoughts. Oh, wow, I've really gone on. Just a few more moments. It's another to to incline our thoughts toward um, non-harming. Because if you're, you're really sensitive, you know that what you say, what you think, and what you do has an impact. Just ask the people who live around you every day. That's what I do. I dedicate my practice to the people who have to live with me every day. May this sitting be for the benefit of the people who have to live with me. May this, may whatever I offer, <laughs> you, know, you get it. But we also can wisely use our thoughts to um, to incline our minds. Remember the Buddha said, whatever you frequently dwell upon becomes the inclination of your heart and mind. So one of the ways that we can incline toward harmlessness is to, is to think every day about ways that we can practice non-harming by as regularly as possible taking the training, um, making the training commitments to not to kill, to cultivate a reverence for life, not to steal, not to take what, that which is not offered, to, and to think about that. Not to cause harm with our sexuality, to think about that, commit to that. Not to cause harm with our speech. And, not to, and to commit ourselves with our thoughts and then our actions, commit ourselves not to causing harm through the excessive use of intoxicants. That leads to carelessness and heedlessness and, uh, and obliviates our sensitivity. So this, 
is, to me, a wise use of thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. So, good luck. <laughs> Let's just sit quietly. Again from the Dhammapada. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. May all beings know their thoughts. May all beings incline their thoughts toward harmlessness, toward love, toward renunciation. May all beings be liberated. And may our practice and the fruits of our practice touch the hearts and minds of all beings. Thanks for listening. Thanks for staying late. I completely lost track of time. You are very respectful for not stirring so much in those last minutes. So thank you, and thanks for your generosity, and hope to see you next week. Set up the hill. <laughs> yeah. Kind of freaked me out to just say that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So it was really bright, the room. Yes. And um, after like 10 minutes, definitely 10 minutes into it, 10, 15 minutes into the meditation, I started to feel like my heart like being squeezed and like almost like this and like nausea. I like wanted to vomit. And then I was like, oh my God. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.